Beyonce, this is my plug. You got to get on the state and local elections game. You got to tell young people that the small votes matter too. Yo, I already have an idea. Anytime you sign up for Beyonce tickets, you automatically get registered to vote. That's dope. Work on that. Yeah, come on, B. <laughs> hey, everyone. This is the Cool for Thought podcast, and I'm Reem Hashim. In this episode, Arib sits down with Katie Thompson, and they talk women's rights, international development, and what the F politics. Katie tells us a little bit about how growing up in rural Kieseltown, Virginia, sparked her desire for cultural exchange. She's worked in the Dominican Republic throughout most of the past five years, and she goes on about how the experience has shaped her outlook on the world. I wanted to explore, like, the international experience that you have, especially, like, the regions, because, A, it's not something that, like, I'm familiar with, and B, I think they're regions that, like, actually do affect American culture and society a lot, and we don't really pay enough attention to them. Mm -hmm. Um, So, I mean, like, you were mentioning, like, the Dominican Republic. I kind of know some stuff that's going on, but it's just, like, you know, stuff that I've heard through the grapevine. Like, I don't, I'm not really educated on it. And a ton of people have been there... Right. to Puerto Plata or whatever, right. Putacana, yeah. but they don't know anything outside of that resort area. And that's exactly. fascinating to me. Exactly, yeah. Like, we go to these, you know, <clears throat> we vacation or spring break to, like, exactly the resorts that you mentioned, and, you know, you you have no interaction with, like, the people who actually live there. Yeah. Um, shout out Cuba. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Explain to me a little bit about how you got introduced with that region or, sure. um, you know, why you were interested in working there. Sure. Um, yeah, so it started off just like every good story should with a great teacher um, who got me really in- interested in the Spanish language and culture. And as I learned about Latin American politics, it was like a James Bond movie. Every story had a plot twist and the CIA and assassins. And I just, um, you know, high school me was just really interested in that. And then when I had the opportunity to go to the Dominican Republic on an alternative winter break trip, which I'm not necessarily for, but that's a different story. Um, something that I would like to get into actually. Sure. Okay. At some point. Yeah. Um, I went to this community called Abate, and Abate is a basically an old sugar plantation slave quarters, um, just concrete barracks, no electricity, no running water, um, and now there are large Haitian communities, uh, or Haitian-Dominican communities. Um, and so I worked there on that just, I don't know, week and a half long trip, which was really fantastic. I met some really amazing people. And that was just a literacy center, you know, teaching kids, um, which is another bad part of a spring break trip, because what can you teach in a week and a half? But um, I was really fascinated with the dynamic between Haitians and Dominicans. And to an outsider who doesn't know anything, we kind of, as Americans, think of them all as black. When you meet a Dominican here, they're black, um, or definitely like dark uh, skin Latino. But in their world, Dominicans are white, they're Spanish, and Haitians are black. And um, just Google a picture of the difference and you can really see, but that that difference was so superficial and these people have been living in the Dominican Republic for 
generations didn't speak Creole, had never been to Haiti, et cetera, et cetera, and yet they still couldn't get health insurance or they couldn't finish high school or they couldn't open a bank account because they were labeled as Haitian um, because their skin tone was what, like three shades darker? So that really drew me in um, just how human beings could view such small differences and have it have such a huge impact. So I've always been interested in development and uh, community development specifically, so I got an internship that summer with them and the rest is history. I mean, I uh, got really involved in bringing, you know, unfortunately using my white American voice to bring attention to this community that wasn't receiving any attention from its own country and its own um, municipal government. And so we did some really great work so far, but it's still, it lies on the shoulders of white Americans um, and not on the people it should, the leaders. Right. And, you so, say, and you say that that's unfortunate. Yes. Explain that a little bit. Um, so, it, I mean, it is just a, a sad reality that people pay attention to people who traditionally have power, and that's, of course, white people. And um, I think it's unfortunate because it's not sustainable, because when white people leave, they're kind of stuck. And, and it also removes the agency of the people themselves, and not that they don't have the skills or abilities themselves to to make the change or say what they need to say or do what they need to do. But without that white presence, it's um, just kind of like shoved under the rug, I think. Um, I'm proud to have been a part of that. And like, I think being self-aware is really important, um, but it is it is a problem. And, and because, you know, for example, in this particular Bate Bate Libertad in 2007, there was a, a big raid. Um, police came in the middle of the night, threatened to deport people. A few people were killed. Several women were um, raped. And it was just a very scary environment. And that still occurs in a lot of Bates, um, but not in Bate Libertad because now we have um, several American NGOs to kind of protect them. And I'm um, I'm glad to be a part of something that keeps the community whole and keeps it safe, but I wish that wasn't the, the case at all, obviously. Mm -hmm. I wish that had never happened. So, does that explain Yeah, that? absolutely. Why do you think the racial dynamic is the way that it is, especially when, because when I think of, honestly, when I think of the Dominican Republic, the very first person that pops into my mind is David Ortiz, mm -hmm. who is like, I mean, he's black. He's black. But he's Dominican. Mm-hmm. So, how do people still consider all Dominicans just blanket as Latino and not black or white and not black? Or, or what's the reasoning behind that? Sure. Um, so most Latin American countries are, there was a wave in the um, 20th century of being proud of their indigenous culture. For example, the newest flag of Mexico involves indigenous symbolism. Um, people don't like they like to say like we're Americans too, South America. Um, but the Dominican Republic is not like that. They still hold their ties to Spain um, as if they never got their independence from them. They're so proud that that's where Christopher Columbus landed for the first time. Um, and so they hang on to that white culture. Of course, there's a huge amount of spectrum and, and mixing because it was a huge slave um, colony. 
a lot of Spaniards, a lot of indigenous people as well, mestizos, and so there's there's that dynamic of, of spectrum in Dominican culture. Whereas Haitians are tied to France, Spain's enemy, I guess, um, and because it was the slave revolt in 1804, they're all, well, not all, of course, there's white aristocracy, but a huge number of them are very, very dark-skinned black, like look as if they just came from West Africa, today, you know, there's still mm -hmm. that very dark skin and there's less of a mixture. So you can visibly tell via phenotype who has Haitian blood and who has Dominican blood. Mm -hmm. Now, the thing about that makes it so complicated is that, of course, Haitians and Dominicans have had relations for hundreds of years. And so there are a lot of Haitian Dominicans. Um, and sometimes you're lucky and your Dominican blood is stronger, they say. Mm -hmm. And so you look like David Ortiz, who is definitely black, but not that almost like very dark bl blue black almost, I want to say. And um, some people are very unlucky and they're Haitian, quote, unlucky, and their Haitian blood is stronger. And so they have those darker features. Um, and there's a lot of really horrible tension between Haiti and the Dominican Republic. The Haiti controlled the Dominican Republic for a while. Actually, the Independence Day that the DR celebrates is the day they gained independence from Haiti after being um, controlled by Haiti for, I think it was four years, whereas Spain ruled them for hundreds of years, and that's not the Independence Day they celebrate, which um, sounds kind of crazy, right? Um, and then also, I would say, religiously, there's huge differences. Um, between Catholicism, obviously, in the Dominican Republic, and then in Haiti, this mixed culture of, of Yoruba and Vodou and just um, a, little, a little bit of everything that has come together from this strong slave culture that they have. Mm -hmm. um, and that also causes friction. Mm -hmm. So now, you mentioned to me the other day that um, you, know, you grew up in a, quote, podunk little town. <laughs> Um, didn't experience any diversity, anything like that. Um, and really, you, d you didn't even meet like a, a Jewish or a Muslim person until you went to college. Could you have imagined that, you know, six or seven years ago, um, you'd be as interested in the things that you are now, or you would be as immersed in the different types of cultures that you are now? Yes. Um, so my, f I am from that podunk town, but my family comes from elsewhere. And I was always taught that people are people and difference is good and you should get to know things outside of yourself. And um, so we didn't have any um, black people or like you mentioned with religious diversity in my high school, but we did have a lot of Latinos because my high school is where the gobblers and where I'm from the Turkey, largest Turkey producer on the East Coast. Um, so we have a lot of turkey farms, and that brings in a lot of immigrants and a lot of undocumented workers. Mm -hmm. um, and when I was in 11th grade, someone brought um, had a Confederate flag in the back of their truck and then burnt a Mexican flag on school property. And it caused huge riot. Um, hundreds of people wore their Dixie Outfitter shirts, and I saw this tiny little freshman girl get pushed down on a flight of stairs and told to go the fuck home. And that has scarred me in a way. I was so ashamed. I was so ashamed of where I'd come from. I was so ashamed of the people that I was surrounded by. Um, and so 
like I said, I had a good Spanish teacher that got me interested in that. And so that combination of events really led me to tutoring and translating and getting really immersed in that Latino culture. And so when I went to UVA, unlike a lot of people's experience, it was so diverse for me. Um, and I was so excited to meet different people. And it was harder to do than I thought. Um, because everyone, I'm sure you know, is pretty segregated in their different types of, of clubs and stuff. Um, but for me, it was very diverse. And so I, I looked for ways to increase that diversity. I worked for Latino and migrant aid and migrant education through Albemarle County Public Schools. I did the translations, continuing to do that. I did tutoring for adults, getting their citizenship, citizenship tests and GEDs and also... Um, young kids in school and so I just continued searching for that so that was always a goal of mine to escape my limitations from being from Kiesel Town Virginia <laughs> <laughs> I'm like I'm loving the accent <laughs> what's your interest in politics and policy then excellent question um well, obviously, if you can't tell from what I've said so far, I'm a liberal, <laughs> and I think equality is extremely important, fairness is extremely important, and I would say that my policy interests and agenda are all about leveling the playing field for opportunity, and so anything that involves uh, poverty alleviation or... Um, I'll be working in healthcare, so I'm interested in healthcare insurance and, of course, like women's rights and, and feminism in general for men and women. Um, How so? Particularly, you mentioned for men. Yeah. Um, I think, it, personally, my brand of feminism is equality is the way to go, and I'm, I don't like the idea that men think that feminists are men haters that's certainly not my case and i think in most cases not true but what we need to understand as americans is that when we level the playing field everyone is better off it's not a zero-sum game in which okay you bring women up and you know women start making the same as men so men make less mm -hmm. no everyone makes more there's mm -hmm. more money in the economy there's more things to spend on there's more jobs um, same is true obviously with like racial discrimination if you level the playing field for minority students in school for example and you improve their educational opportunities everyone's education goes up the kids who are already doing well don't do worse. Mm -hmm. And that's something that is not part of the discourse, I think, in, in our politics. It's always, well, it's not fair because if you do this, then you lose that. And I just, yeah. I don't find that to be true. And, you know, the economic models say that's not true. Um, so that's not talked about enough. Right. When we talk about, like, equality, and, you know, you mentioned um, just leveling the playing field. You've used that term a couple times. How do you mean leveling the playing field exactly? Because when we talk about like economics and, and the pay gap, right? Mm -hmm. I want to say that it was like the first law that President Obama signed that women should be paid the exact same as men for services performed. Mm -hmm. So why do we still see that? You know, how, how, do we, how do we actually find that level playing field when there are certain types of people who who really are pulling the strings. Mm -hmm. Well, to level the playing field, we have to change the game. 
It's true that we have made tremendous strides in equal pay. It's true that a lot of women choose to earn less because they want to spend time with kids and family. We want, they want to, sometimes they have to take care of elders and that's more of the female role. Um, and to level that playing field, like I said, we need to change the game. We need to make that okay. We need to make that not stigmatized. We need to encourage the role that fathers play in a child's life and, um, allow for for work schedules to be flexible. People do their best work when they enjoy it and their lives are going well. So thinking that productivity is highest when you have someone at a desk from nine to five is just frankly not true. Mm -hmm. And we need to be more flexible with, you know, paid family leave for men and women um, in order to, to change that game. Because it's not, it, it is not a matter of fact that, oh, you know, male CEO has female, you know, um, subordinate and male subordinate and is like, oh, I'm going to discriminate and pay her less. That, that's right. just not, I mean, I'm sure it occurs, but that's not the norm now. Right. But we need to think clearly about what are the differences, why, and how do we go about um equaling those out yeah you saw me just pull up this article on fox um it's titled white women benefit most from affirmative action and are among its fiercest opponents uh, i've read this okay good <laughs> good um so i want to focus mainly on white women have become some of affirmative action's fiercest opponents why is that well, uh, I think they're crazy, so I'm not sure I can, I can explain it. Um, I mean, I think there is a lack of knowledge, unfortunately. I mean, I'm a white woman, and I'm smart as hell, and I'm driven, and I can write a good essay, but I'm sure I've benefited from affirmative action. Um, I, think, I think framing is so important in this type of issue. Even the term itself, affirmative action, is inflammatory. It's Why? Because it feels to those who are afraid that they'll lose their place in society, it feels... Um, so the, the people who are already, you know, already achieving whatever needs to be achieved. They're or, have, or have the opportunity to. Okay. Um, yeah. So these white women who um, maybe don't have everything in life but want to and are trying to figure out the best way to, to do it then feel entitled when something doesn't go their way, right? When they think their place has been filled by a black woman, they get angry. But the truth is, nobody knows. You can never know that you didn't get in because someone else did, because a black person did, and or if your grades just weren't enough. That's part of affirmative action. You can't figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, but, but back to the term, the, the fact that it's so actionary makes people reactionary. And I think that in itself is the main problem. If we talk about, if we could change the framing, and I don't have a great idea off the top of my head, but so that it better explains that we're trying to get people on the same ground zero to figure out these people who have, who have been disadvantaged for a long time, women of all colors, mm -hmm minorities that 
we have to get them to a certain place. And then it does come down to grades and essays mm. and extracurricular activities. It is that. Getting someone, uh, someone who receives affirmative action is not necessarily, or actually is never less qualified than the person who didn't get in. That's mm -hmm. not the case. That's not how it works. And I think we don't talk enough about how these policies work. Right. Um, I mean, yes. So I can't, I can't explain why right. they're crazy. <laughs> so perfect example, I guess, and, and the Vox article mentions it, and I'm sure many people who have attended college have heard about this at this point, but Abigail Fisher, the woman who didn't get into University of Texas and then ended up suing, um, I think the UT law is that like the top 10% of every graduating class like gets into the school or whatever. Um, but so somebody like that, somebody who, you know, had like a near 4.0 GPA, um, and, you know, quote unquote, like great extracurriculars, etc., doesn't get into the school and then blames affirmative action. These people who, um, you know, like you mentioned, have those opportunities and maybe are reacting to this word action and, and the, the outcomes of this action that they see. Is it just that they just have this mentality that, they, you know, they're entitled or? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned, you know, you don't really know how to explain the craziness. Right. But. Well, I mean, it's just utter bullshit because she went to college. Right. She went to a good school. She graduated. She had the opportunities that she deserved, that she earned. She had them. Mm -hmm. And then she wanted to sue. Mm -hmm. Right? If she couldn't... So she also had the opportunity then to go and... Exactly. People this, get... Yeah. To, people get rejected from colleges. It's part of life. Yeah. Really. It doesn't matter. I mean... My one of my cousins, he is brilliant. He went to TJ. He now goes to Harvard Law. He got rejected from UVA. Is he smart enough to go to UVA? Hell yeah. But do you get rejected as a part of life? Yeah. Absolutely. And the fact that the this woman still had the opportunity but got rejected from one school and she... I have to believe that she doesn't give a shit about whether she got in or not. She wants to sue someone, right. get her name out there, and maybe make some money. Um, so, yeah. I, it's, yeah. If she hadn't gotten to any school, which is not st statistically possible, mm -hmm. okay, maybe, yeah. she, maybe she would have some basis. Yeah. But she went to college. Right, right, right. <laughs> Gosh, she's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I also like that you mentioned um, the reactionary to the word action. Um, I think that that kind of describes a lot of what we see anytime we have any progress in America. Um, or I, I would hope it's not just an American phenomenon, really, but we see um, the end of slavery, and then you see Jim Crow laws. We see, you know, there's just example after example. We have President Barack Obama, now we have Donald Trump, right? <laughs> not yet. We do not have Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> Polling may say otherwise, but yeah, I mean, why do we have these types of violent, really violent reactions to any type of progress? Because the growing number of, um, of advancements that we have, I mean, it's, it's really like an exponential influx of progress, right? Which is amazing to see because once one thing gets rolling, we can start saying, all right, now this is what needs to be changed. And this is what, you know, gay rights, um, women's rights, everything. It, it just, it's a ball that starts rolling and it starts snowballing. And then on the opposite side, you kind of see the same thing happening where, you know, there are just so many people coming out of the woodwork who have 
these strong nationalistic feelings or these strong white supremacist feelings have they just been like I keep thinking like have they just been dormant for this long they mm. just needed all of these things to provoke them so much that now they can march in front of the Lincoln Memorial and say like oh Mexicans shouldn't be here like this stuff kind of blows my mind you know what I mean like mm-hmm. the types of reaction that we see and it's not just I think a lot of people like to say that it's it's like a generational thing but it's really not yeah. I mean I don't want I really don't even want to say his name but Dylan Roof was what like 19 oh my gosh right? yeah so this is cl- that wrecked me exactly summer. exactly and like this is somebody who is younger than you and me and and has the like flag of uh, the country before Zimbabwe. I'm forgetting what it was called, but you know that white nationalistic mm-hmm. you know flag. and like that's something that he was taught, you know, so or that's something that he probably sought out. Mm-hmm. Like this isn't purely a you know this isn't purely a discussion of, oh, we need to wait until these old races die off or these old people with these mentalities die off, right? Like, these things are still popping up somehow, some way. Mm-hmm. So my push back to that is I do want to believe that it part of it has to be generational because that's the only thing I can have faith in, really. And okay. there is a, you know, young people vote, please, please do it. Um, that's my plug. Get for on the Tinder end of the thing. and and swipe the vote. I swipe, think swipe the vote. I we like are it. not sponsored by Tinder. No, we are not. <laughs> but we could be. Um, but I I do want to believe that those episodes of Dylan Roof and other young people that they're just sick. I mean, real. I mean, so messed up. I mean, just horrific. And I want. I need to assume that that's a rarity nowadays and it is these big generational changes can be made when young people vote (laughs) and um not just in the presidential election but really state local get those districts right Right. um i mean the state that we live in uh, you know perfect example red legislature but probably going to go blue in the presidential for the next however many years right and and we need to vote in like twice a year get it done um as far as the reactions, Michelle Alexander, the author of The New Jim Crow, has this theory that, you know, history repeats itself and, and we live in a society of castes, not classes, but castes. And it's minorities, you know, used to be Italians and now it's Mexicans and um just minorities in general and so we have a tendency to have this cyclical event of progress reaction progress reaction and it it we're moving forward but the stone is rolling slowly and here again I don't want that to be true as a policy student I just want us to have good ideas and good framing and we need to one of the biggest maybe i'm jumping here but one of the biggest problems and the reason we have these reactions is sometimes stuff doesn't work sometimes it doesn't work and we're not evaluating and reevaluating. Mm-hmm. so if we create a big policy the fair housing act for example we need to have i don't know a five-year timeline we do an evaluation at two and a half years if it's not where we want to be in five years 
we have to make a legislative legislative change to it. Um, we have to try new things. And you know, listening to previous episodes, my good friend Will talked about once an agency is started, it can't be removed. And unfortunately, that's true. We need to be able to look at what we've done and make it better mm. without all of the haggling and pain in the assness it takes to get a whole new bill passed. I mean, mm. I mean really, it's common sense to me, at least. Yeah. Um, and I think if we have the ability to make some changes and improve upon our ideas as a nation, um, perfect example is the crime bill from the Clinton era. Mm -hmm. If we could have evaluated that as Democrats and Republicans, we would all say, let's do something different. Right. Every single person. They would all say, let's change this in some way. And we wouldn't be, you know, 10 years out with one in three males interacting, black males interacting with the judicial system. So mm. that's one idea. <laughs> and a great one at that. <laughs> yeah. Um, let's backtrack a little bit. So to get out of like heavy policy stuff. Okay. Um, you said that you are like, or you have like weird feelings, I think, about alternative winter break. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know people who have done like alternative spring break and stuff like that. Um, and... I feel like they come back with either exactly how you feel about it or how I assume you feel about it, or they're, like, super for it. So, full disclosure, I've always been against that kind of volunteerism, and then I went through a really bad breakup, and I couldn't go home for winter break, and so I was like, oh, I'll go to this thing, <laughs> which ended up being one of the best things I ever did, personally. Um, for... You have a trip of 10 people, nine of them, maybe their eyes will be opened a little bit for the next month and a half. Maybe they'll feel like they did some good and met some interesting people. Maybe they'll view their wealth in a different way. Um, and there'll be one person who falls in love. I mean, just really wants to do the work, wants to understand more, wants to be part of something bigger and something different. Mm -hmm. And I think that if those trips get one out of 10 people like that, they're worth it. Okay. I, there are huge problems, lasting, long lasting problems, but at the same time in a community that is really suffering and there, there's nothing to do, there's no jobs, it's hot, bringing in a group of college kids always makes things more fun. I mean, really, the, the kids of the community love it the young adults like hanging out and meeting new friends, mm -hmm. but it they leave, and that does cause problems. But if you find one person who is changed by that experience and wants to help um, the, the people who are less fortunate than them from then on, whether that's in the U.S. or abroad or or even just in their everyday lives doing charity at home while they live in the D.C. suburbs, hmm. I think it does matter and it does make a difference. But it has to be done right. Um, and it has to be done consciously. And I think at least, and I also ended up leading an ASB trip back to the community. Okay. And that was so important for me. We talked about all the problems. We, we ha I'm, I don't know if they liked this, but I, I gave a lecture on the history of the countries and why these people are trapped in this community the way they are. And, and so they were really aware. And I think 
I think it gave them a much better perspective on what they were doing there. And it, and they know it's not about building the fence. It's right. it's not about um, painting the walls. It's I think if you can learn more than you teach, mm-hmm. that's the thing. Okay. See, that makes sense to me. Yeah. Like, that's like a good pitch for ASB. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas, like, everything that I've heard, or just, like, from people that have gone, and maybe they just, like, weren't with people who were, like, as woke as you are about it. Like, they, yeah, they were just, like, <laughs> you know, kind of going because they got this, like, you know, trip to New Orleans or Florida or whatever. Right. And at... I mean, I kind of feel like that, not to go out on my soapbox, but Semester at Sea. <laughs> uh-huh. Semester at Sea is awesome. Take mm-hmm. a vacation for four months and go to a lot of different places. Do not say you did shit. Yeah. Don't say you learned shit. <laughs> yeah. Have fun. Drink in all the cities. Be on a boat. Do your thing. <laughs> but don't try and make it something that's not. I had a class, a poverty class, U.S. in poverty. And my professor had lived for 10 years in the Soviet Republic. And I come from humble beginnings. I'm sure a lot of other people in that class had. And this kid had the balls to say, I was on semester at sea and I spent a day in Madagascar and I saw poverty. Therefore, I know. I, li- I left. Yeah. I, I had to leave or else... I probably would have gotten suspended yeah. or something. <laughs> my, uh, yeah, one of my best friends and I have um, <clears throat> a mutual acquaintance, I guess. We both had class with this person who, um, I guess, was in Brazil for a week or something. And it's the only thing that they ever mentioned. Just, just so happened to be the only thing that they ever mentioned in both of the classes that we had with her. Um, <laughs> yeah. It drives me nuts. And I was I was a GDS major. Global Development Studies. And so we had a lot of that. And we had a lot of really woke people and some not so woke people. Mm-hmm. But collectively, I've spent over a year in the in the same community in the Dominican Republic. Mm-hmm. I would say for a white lady, I've got some pretty good observations of the community. Right. I didn't say anything in that <laughs> class because I didn't, I didn't want to be that person. Uh-huh. And it's not necessary. There are professors that can say that. Or, you know, right. if we're talking about something, you know, I'm, I'm happy to share an experience. But I'm not about to pretend I'm the authority. Right. And there are people, there are 22-year-olds that do that. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that that's such a, I hate to, like, say this, but that's such a, like, millennial phenomenon to me. Yeah. Because maybe because we have the opportunity to visit other places so frequently through school or wherever, mm-hmm. like we want to just come back and, and maybe it also is like the social media phenomenon where we want to, you know, like have this profile picture with this little African child or, you know, we want to just like, ex- like constantly talk about these experiences that are not our own, but we want to play them up because it makes us seem more cultured. Yeah. So getting back to like kind of, women's rights i was gonna maybe? say i was gonna say so you want to talk about abortion yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah to put it bluntly um so you're on the liberal side of the debate if you want to put it that way right mm-hmm. um which means what to you without me having to like mansplain owl woman'splain yes yeah um yeah so i'm on the liberal side but i think i have a unique opinion Okay. So this will be cool. Or hopefully I don't have a unique opinion, but I haven't (laughs) heard other people talk about it in this way. So discourse surrounding the abortion debate is it's murder 
I'm pro-life, I'm Catholic, et cetera, et cetera. Or it's a woman's right to choose. She can do what she wants with her body. It's not murder. Or if you think it's murder, I don't care because that's religion and state and it shouldn't mix. I think that that was created. The word, the term abortion was brought into politics as an issue by Republicans. And I know both parties do stuff like this, but I can have sources. Republicans brought in the term abortion instead of the term woman's rights or woman's health. And that is to polarize voters. If you truly believe that conception is the beginning of a life and anything after that is murder, you're never going to change that opinion. I can't. I can't change that opinion. I wouldn't want to. That is your religion and your beliefs and, and you are entitled to them. If you don't think that, you're never going to change that either. So that term was created to really pull the voter. If you are pro-life, you're never going to vote for a Democrat, even if the Republican nominee is Donald Trump. I mean, really, hmm. you have to be a single-issue voter. If instead we discussed woman's health and reproductive rights, reproductive health, and back to paid family leave, destigmatizing what it means to be a young mom, a single mom, or a low-income mom. That's what really matters, and that's what both parties should be talking about. We shouldn't be talking about defunding Planned Parenthood. If you really think that abortions are murder, you should be trying to remove, as a policy agenda, remove abortions from Planned Parenthood's abilities. But everybody should want Planned Parenthood because it actually decreases the rate of abortion. I personally believe that every abortion is a tragedy to the woman, um, even though I don't believe life begins at conception. I think that it's a tragedy because of the lost potential. Perhaps it, it could have been, um, you know, your beautiful child, and, and that's sad. But we need to make it okay for women to feel comfortable having that kid, right? If, if, that, if, you're, if you really believe... And I don't. But if you really believe that abortion is murder, you should be working so that women are better able to have children. Because the reason women have abortions is because they can't afford it, a child. They have no support. They're in school, therefore they're not ready. So why isn't the discussion in the debates about how do we make it easier for for mothers and, and families in general. How do we better support young moms? Mm -hmm. um, and I think, I think that's what's so frustrating to me. We shouldn't be talking about abortion at all. Abortion is such a small part of what's missing in our, in our needs for women's rights. And that term is just meant to polarize people. And we see that, um, for example, Democrats and Republicans using the terms tough on crime to get white poor whites back into the party Absolutely. to, you know, Republicans did it, Democrats did it, Republicans did it, Democrats did it. And Republicans use that same strategy with Reagan bringing in his Christian values and bringing religion into politics for the first time. Yeah, Jesus. <laughs> and, and, and bringing in that term abortion. I mean, really, that was him. And since then, we don't talk about women's rights. Mm -hmm. We talk about this one thing that is, I don't know, 21% of all unwanted pregnancies. Yeah. Yeah. So why do we get Planned Parenthood so wrong then? Well, first of all, 
no one, the media did not make a bigger deal out of the fact that those, the directors of that video were indicted because it was all fake. Yeah. <laughs> that didn't get enough coverage. I think... Which was probably pretty, you know, intentional. Yes, without a doubt. And I think that we get it wrong because the people who make decisions are unfamiliar with it. And that's sad because it's a great resource for mm-hmm. prenatal care. Mm-hmm. It's a great resource for contraception. Mm-hmm. It's a great resource for just women who are struggling in general. And men. And, and men, yeah. yeah. And so, but the people who are in charge have all these opportunities and have great health care and have um, great sources of information and support so they don't see what it actually does. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, you get like, I don't know, the horrible instances of like a shooting at a Planned Parenthood clinic. And then that, you know, of course, only pulls out that one thing that, oh, that guy was there because he was trying to, you know, prevent them from performing abortions or something, you know, something like that. Right. So he goes in and does. Commits murder. (laughs) Exactly. Does what he's there to apparently get them to stop doing. I, I, I don't know. Just another instance of crazy people, I guess. Yeah. Um, I don't know. But I mean, why? I was infuriated by that because why wasn't Carly Fiorina and Ted, why weren't they held responsible for murdering these 13 people? Do you think that it's just, it's really just an education gap that people just don't know the services that Planned Parenthood provides? Again, we are not sponsored by anybody, so we're not <laughs> just, you know what I mean? Like, is this just like a thing where, like, maybe in schools or in colleges or wherever that we're just not really talking about the types of services that people, and I say people, like everybody can just go seek out for purely health reasons. Mm-hmm. I I would want to believe that it's an education gap, but there's, and not to be too cliche, but there's also a part of like keeping the little people down. I mean, it comes back to young people voting and people who receive these services getting out the vote and understanding the importance of their vote because a lot of people use Planned Parenthood. Whites, minorities, all people. And the fact that there wasn't... The uproar about Planned Parenthood was coming from white, well-educated, upper-middle-class women is a problem. I mean, good for them, but where was everybody else? And how do we, how do we advocate for it from the people who are actually in need of it? Mm-hmm. And I think coming from where I come from, that's so hard to see. I mean, very rural, very low income, very white, and we have supporters, and these people are, are, are on welfare. I mean, mm-hmm. without a doubt. And so why isn't there a connection between what you yourself are surviving on and what you think is going to happen to you if this billionaire jackass gets elected. Can I curse on this thing? Is that Absolutely. Okay, okay good. <laughs> We're way past that. Point, so. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> That's true. That's true. So my point is that I think the, the white people who are afraid, mm-hmm. um, who are susceptible to the fear-mongering, who can march in front of Lincoln Memorial and say... Muslims go home, Mexicans go home. They don't know anyone. And right. if they, I believe personally that 
if they did, they would feel differently. Yeah. That voice you heard in the intro was none other than our producer, Reem Hashim. Thanks so much for listening, everyone. And if there are any topics or people you want to hear on the podcast, just holla at us. Check out our website, www.coolforthought.com, and drop us a message in the request box. I know it's been a while since we've put an episode out, but I promise we're going to get on a more regular schedule from here on out. Yeah, let's not make promises. (laughs) Stay hungry.